0: Today we have Doug Stevens, founder of Retail Profit. Doug is also an author, speaker, and consultant. He's one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists. His intellectual work and thinking have influenced many of the most widely known international retailers, agencies, and brands, including Walmart, Google, Estee Lauder, BMW, and Louis Vuitton. In this conversation, we talk about how the store experience of being in the brick and mortar is becoming more of a media experience rather than a distribution experience. We talk about the future of the sales associate position and how it's becoming more of a profession. We talk about personalizing shopper experiences at scale, as well as how malls are changing their value proposition to attract more shoppers. Let's get into it.
1: I mean, one thing I think is important, I suppose, is that we live in a world today where on almost every level, if you're a brand, regardless of category, whether you're in hospitality, food and beverage, retail, it doesn't really matter. You have so many choices now in terms of platforms and programs and technologies and um, you know, and and approaches just in terms of market approaches. Um, one of the questions I find I get a lot is just, where do you even start? How do you, how do you sort through what is a priority? What isn't, what should you be investing in? What, you know, what shouldn't you be? What's a trend? What, what's just a passing fad, you know? um so a lot of the work we do is is frankly aimed at helping brands sort all that out i guess i guess the first thing to understand is that you know we come from we're coming out of one era and moving into another and what i mean by that is you know if you if you go to any street corner in the united states or canada or frankly anywhere and you stand on a street corner and you look around, you have to appreciate that about 90% of everything that you're looking at is a product of the industrial era. We live in a world where we have all these legacy assets from the industrial era. So whether that's you know commuter uh, traffic, um, billboards, department stores, Um, you know, main streets of of retail, all of these things are, you know, really a product of, of an industrial era of consumerism and an industrial era of retail. But then as you sort of pan down on the horizon and you see the people going by, what becomes immediately obvious, because almost everybody is glued to this device, the smartphone or some or some equivalent of, is that the people are a product of the digital age. And I think that's where there's a lot of tension right now between, you know, sort of straddling with one, one foot remaining in the industrial era of retail, but clearly trying to address consumers and, and, and satisfy consumers who are a product of the digital age. And so I think the first acknowledgement is, is really that you know that that we're we're positioned right now at a very historic point beyond that i think we also have to appreciate that the concept of value in retail for consumers has also fundamentally changed it wasn't that long ago in the full scheme of things that the value that any retailer brought to the consumer fundamentally was centered around access to product, number one. So if you were a department store, you sort of traded on the idea that, uh, you know, you, you could present consumers with an array of products that was satisfactory for most of their needs. And if you were a shopping center, you could present to a consumer an array of brands that could satisfy most of their needs. And then on top of that, we'd sprinkle a little bit of product knowledge so that if you had a question, you could get an answer to it. And hopefully with some modicum of reasonably good service, you know, service that seemed reasonably appreciative. Not that long ago, that was a recipe for success. All of that now um, is, is almost irrelevant. Um, the Internet laid waste to the selection that a department store once offered, right? The the biggest department store on earth right now sits on a smartphone and and you can have access to anything. The issue of product knowledge uh, is, uh, again, uh, something that has just been obliterated by digital technology. Today, you know, after watching, you know, five, Five or 10 minutes of videos, reading a couple of articles and six reviews, I can know more about a product than the person that's responsible for selling it in Best Buy. And in terms of you know easy, convenient service, I think we'd all argue that it's not exactly easy and convenient to go to a physical store anymore. It's It's more convenient to order something off Amazon, have it delivered to my doorstep the next day. So the whole value proposition of retail has been upended and so it's a long-winded way of saying that retailers generally speaking today need to reinvent the value that they bring they need to reestablish themselves in this equation between a brand and a consumer because consumers have caught on to the idea that, hey, maybe we don't need retail. We can just go straight to the brand to do business. And brands are saying, hey, this is like going back a thousand years when we could do business directly with consumers without the need for institutional retail. Everybody's happy. So that's where I think most retailers today find themselves. What is the new and radical level of value that we can distribute to consumers in the process of providing them with products, service, and a degree of of knowledge. Um, So that sort of, I think, hopefully sets the stage for where I think we're at.
0: It does. And through this, um, I think speaking to the value proposition, it's clear that a lot of people with the rise of e-commerce, they thought that retail was going to die. But it's still around. It's still the majority of um, the way people do shopping. But to your point, it's not because it's the most efficient. It's those other intangibles that people like to go out and do it with their friends as a social, um, a, a means of you know being social, or they like to explore, or they simply just like to have fun and and maybe even have some human uh, contact. With that now being i guess more established and well like more accepted how can brands leverage that and what what changes does that mean to the actual stores
1: yeah great point so and again if we just sort of step back and and, and it's funny because oftentimes people will will ask me you know what is um what does it mean when you say you're a futurist, what, what does that look like? Like, what do you do on a daily basis? And what does a futurist have to, to pay attention to? And oftentimes, I think one of the uh, most important things, if we're if we're trying to understand what, what may happen or what is likely to happen, uh, it's important to understand what has happened. The old convention was to go out on the open market, just buy enough media, buy, buy more media than your competitor and drive more feet to the door. The problem is that that is no longer possible to do, in part because the cost of media is rising exponentially. Um, If we look at Stitch Fix, for example, uh, apparel brand in the US market in 2016, they were paying $31 per customer acquired through digital media. Today, that's $350 per customer. So that's becoming untenable. But media, digital media is also becoming less effective in in terms of its ability to reach consumers in a meaningful way there was one study done recently that said about 70% of every dollar that's spent on digital media is wasted it gets eaten up with fees with bad placements with with non-optimal placement for the consumer to actually see the ad so who the hell knows what an impression even is these days so basically we're in a situation where you can't you can't advertise a mediocre proposition enough to actually drive people to your store. Uh, And in the consumer's mind, something else is happening now. In the consumer's mind, this is the store. In an increasing way, the mobile device, their their smartphone is the store. It's the first place they go to determine what their product options are. It's the first place they go to get expert information on the product that they're looking at buying. And in an increasing fashion, it's also the place where they're consummating the transaction. So the question is, does that negate the value of physical retail? And this has been the ongoing open question in the industry for the better part of two decades. And my answer is absolutely not. But what it does is, it fundamentally changes the role of the store. And what's happening is not that everything's just becoming this amorphous thing we call omni-channel. In fact, what's happening is, yes, media is becoming the store and stores are becoming media. Physical stores are becoming a media channel for the purpose not of product distribution so much, as customer acquisition. That a consumer's first interaction with your brand may be in the physical space. And the experience that they have in that physical space can be used to galvanize a relationship with them across channels. A brand that has caught on to this perfectly, and I've spoken to them about it, is Nike. Uh, Nike realized around 2017 that going through typical retail distribution just was not doing their brand any favors. They were trading at about $51 a share uh, in 2017. They took it upon themselves to reevaluate their distribution, to invest very heavily in in digital, uh, to invest very heavily in the creation of experiential stores and use those stores as a portal. To bring people into the brand and then sort of set them loose on their digital platforms. Uh, in doing so, they raised their, dis- their direct-to-consumer sales exponentially. They raised their revenues, their profitability, their Nike Running Club memberships, and <clears throat> they also found that anyone that visited a Nike store prior to shopping online spent 30% more than customers that didn't uh, visit a store first. So. In this weird sort of way, what's happened is that the roles of media and physical stores have actually traded now to the extent that uh, brands that kind of get the transition are using their media as a means of selling product. They're using it to, to actually transact sales and they're using their stores more as a means of acquiring new customers. Completely different dynamic. And when you start to look at a... A physical retail store through the lens of it being a media experience, not just a product distribution experience, but a media experience changes everything. Who you hire to work there, how you design that store, how you merchandise it, um, and what you do within it. You know, the activities that you do within it uh, change completely when you look at it through that lens. Would
0: this work for a store that, has kind of built its whole reputation and, and value proposition on being a general store. So Nike is, you know, very athletic focused. And it makes sense to have people like to exercise, not just makes sense. But what about for a store like Walmart or a store like Target, and that have all these different departments? How could how could they do something similar?
1: Well, you know, what I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> um, there, there may be no, I mean, there are a few stories in the retail market that sort of consistently rise to the, the top of the headlines. And one of them for the last decade has been the decline of the department store. Now, we've just heard over and over and over again, the department store model is dying. Sears is dying. J.C. JCPenney's is dying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's happening all over the world. Um, however, that doesn't apply evenly to all department stores. And I'll give you one example, and that's Selfridge's. Selfridges in the UK um, has actually grown in value. It was recently sold to a, a buyer uh, at a significantly higher value than it was worth only you know, five or six years ago. So how has Selfridges managed to do what no other department stores seem to have been able to do? They focused on experiences. When you walked into a Selfridges store, it wasn't just piles of merchandise. It wasn't even just, just nicely merchandised products. It was experiences. In every category, in every department, there was something more than just the product. And going to Selfridges was in and of itself a form of entertainment. You know, So it can certainly apply to multi-line merchants. And I would argue that Even in a Walmart store, there's room for a lot more experiential theater within a Walmart. The trick is for for a brand like Walmart, you have to be sure that whatever you're doing, whatever, whatever experiences you're designing within the store are congruent with the customer's perception of your brand. And hopefully that perception of your brand is intentional. It's what you want them to believe about your brand. So what is the message in a Walmart? The message is fundamentally about getting the things you need at a cost that allows you to live a decent life, right? Save money, live better. That's that's the tagline. So whatever a Walmart does in terms of building out experiences in the store, should reinforce and backstop that messaging, that you're saving money and you're living better. So you have to, you know, it's not to say that there's one sort of broad brush approach to every retail experience, and Nike stores are certainly going to be very different than Walmart, but you have to kind of get down to the essence of what is our brand value? What is our brand promise? What's the big idea? And how can we create moments of engagement, um, moments of surprise and delight within that sort of uh, brand sandbox that we've carved out?
0: That's amazing. I mean, I, I love that. That's uh yeah, as you speak, it's there's so many opportunities or creative ways to think with the with Walmart, you, you got your cooking, you got your I mean, they could even have, if save money live better, host like financial planning classes of some sort, maybe I I don't know, maybe that's not a little too off brand. But um, so, so you, these experiences, and I've, I've read some of your work that you're talking about how kind of tying into the next Um, phase of creating an experience kind of a two-part to this but part one is hiring people that can deliver on these types of experiences and you've um talked about and written about how retail is going to become more of a profession in some circumstances rather than um a disposable workforce and i just want to like is that the biggest barrier to entry right now, or kind of talk about how, I guess maybe brands can start taking steps towards this this vision? Mm-hmm.
1: Like so many things in in the world today, um, things are are very much um, sp- there, you know there's a split, um, and and it applies as much to labor in the retail market as it does to anything else we're sort of you know we've seen this division between you know it, it discount and luxury we've seen this di- this delineation between self serve and you know over the top personalized service um, and and so forth <clears throat> the same thing applies to labor the um uh, the retail industry, frankly, has spent about the last forty years dumbing down the job of a retail sales associate. Um, we we have introduced technology that, to some extent, pushed the role of a sales associate into sort of a purgatory. You know, we were you know depending on machines to give us information, but those machines didn't really enable a high level of service. We just sort of deferred to them for inventory management, for point of sale services, et cetera. We we introduced technology that didn't really empower sales associates. It just sort of disintermediated them from the experience of dealing directly with consumers. And so, you know, we're in a world now where if you walk up to someone in a store and you say, can you tell me where this particular product is? And in many cases, they don't even know. They, they don't know. I mean, they can go and they can kind of look on a system to see where it might be. And if the system doesn't tell them, they, they don't even make the connection that maybe I should take this customer and see if we can find it. You know, we've we've disassociated their role. Um, and but I think that's changing. And as retailers begin to realize in a profound way that the consumer can buy whatever you're selling anywhere. They really can. I mean, you know, for any product need, there's like a billion different options that we have today. So what really matters is the value add. And and that too is dividing into two very distinct camps. So for some retailers, it really is simply about having the widest selection of products that are available with the greatest level of convenience and at a level of value that doesn't need to be questioned. And I would say Walmart fits in that bucket, right? Walmart's role as they see it and as I would see it, Walmart's role is not to <clears throat> hire you know, uh, influential product salespeople who are really going to regale you with all kinds of entertainment value in the aisle. The average Walmart shopper wants in, they want out, they want to get what they need, and they want to get it with no headaches and just feel that they got good, solid value that day. That's a very different experience than if I'm going into a Nordstrom store, right? It's a very different customer. It's a different kind of purchase, and it's a different experience. And so what we're seeing is we're really seeing two kinds of call them brand ambassadors in the marketplace. In a Walmart store, that the employee is subjugated to the technology. The employee is really an enabler of the technology. They, They are there to keep the technology working, whether that's inventory management, enterprise management, or point of sale. In a Nordstrom store, the technology is enabling the salesperson. And so we have a fundamentally different approach to the value and purpose of both of those things, the technology itself and the human being. Um, And in both cases, it is also true that the combination of people and technology is a pretty forceful combination. It's a very effective combination. Just having technology or just having people is less effective than having the two together. But it's really almost a philosophical difference in terms of how we approach that. So long story short, Um, If you're a luxury retailer or if you're a high-end retailer and you're trying to add value, it's vitally important that you're not just hiring people who are slaves to technology and providing a mediocre level of service. You should be hiring people who you could regard as being influencers in the category and really empowering those people with technology to provide an over-the-top level of knowledge, expertise, and customer service. And at the other end, you need to make sure that that machine the, the, is constantly oiled and running smoothly, so that people can get in and out with what they need, all at good value.
0: As a futurist, what do you see as being a more personalized experience for shopping?
1: It's a great, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you just one one sort of example that that has always kind of confounded me. It, when we get to this notion of of personalization, right? Um it you know Starbucks is a great example of a brand that is in the business of personalization right just the the making of a, a you know a, a latte with an extra shot of uh, espresso and you know i don't know like extra hot foam or whatever <laughs> whatever you want to put on it, it is by definition it is a customized business and Starbucks also has an incredibly effective and um, well-populated app that, you know, so many of us happen to have on our smartphones. But here's the funny thing. When you go up to the counter in a Starbucks and you place your order, you do so, uh, you know, you, you give them your order, they ask for your name, and then at the end of the transaction, you scan your device and you either pay or you get, you know, some sort of reward or something. My question is, why on earth wouldn't you walk up to the counter and scan your device first? And that says, here's who I am. So I don't need to tell you my name. Now you know my name. And moreover, you now, as Starbucks, know my history. You can see what my preferences are. You can see what I ordered last time. You can begin to personalize that experience in a way that you couldn't beforehand. And I truly believe that that is the future. I think that uh, on an increasing level, when we go into stores, we are going to be, if we wish, if we wish, it's completely voluntary, but we will be asked if we want to scan our device and, and provide the store immediately with our Information connecting the dots between our online behavior and our offline behavior. Now, all of a sudden, if I walk into an IKEA or something, it can start to get a sense of, oh, okay, yeah, we know you. We we know what you've been interested in the past, and and based on that, hey, you might be interested to know that we've got this new product over here, or that we're having this event on Wednesday that might appeal to you, or you know, all kinds of different functionality. So, I believe that stores are going to be transforming from being these kind of inanimate concrete boxes filled with product to becoming more living, uh, uh, breathing, uh, active spaces that are intelligent, that are receptive to individual consumer needs and creating individual consumer journeys through those stores and also measuring that activity through the store. In real time, the way we measure a website today, we can see how many visitors, where did they go? What did they, where did they spend their time? Who did they engage with and for how long? And we start to get a sense now of, again, the store being media, not just being a warehouse. Yeah. You know, as you're speaking,
0: it's kind of making me think the the Google Glass and like the new Ray-Ban um, sunglasses that have technology, I don't know if that's ever necessary. It it might catch on for just like day-to-day living, but as a tool for a salesperson on the retail floor, if they could somehow, when someone scans in and then those glasses would somehow um, like show as a augmented reality, like the the, the purchase history and like preferences and all that stuff floating above them or something. Is that, is that a possibility? Maybe I'm just like off the walls here, but.
1: The, the simple answer is if you can imagine it, it can be done. I think that's the world that we live in today. If something, if something seems plausible, even inside the bounds of your own imagination, it's probably doable. Um, The, uh, the operative question around so many of these things is not technological, you know, can we create augmented reality experiences yes could we attach those to uh to an image of a person yes so if i look at you and i pick up your image could i see data around that yes we're already and we're already doing that these questions are more social and cultural than anything else you know um and what we do know is <clears throat> uh as retailers as brands we have to be sensitive to these things there's a, an abundance of research out there today that says that facial recognition is widely eschewed by consumers it is it is widely frowned upon by consumers um, they are not they are comfortable in some settings with uh, government agencies and, you know being being able to use that technologies at border crossings and that sort of thing they're comfortable with but when you get down to the level of advertisers brands and retailers not so much. They're afraid of being exploited. Uh, and, you know, and, and that's understandable. Um, other technologies like fingerprint recognition for payment on a, on an, on an iPhone or something like that, consumers are much more comfortable with. So I believe that our perceptions, our cultural perceptions around these sorts of things are going to change. They're going to evolve. Um, you know, I think. Uh, um, if you just look at online retail, my goodness, 20 years ago, a lot of people wouldn't shop online, period. You know, they were afraid of getting hacked. They were afraid of their credit card information being stolen, et cetera, et cetera. And today, it, it's second nature to order things online. So uh, those those feelings and sentiments and cultural norms can certainly change. But yeah, I mean, that's the world we live in today is, it, you know, if it's if we can dream it, we can do it.
0: I guess along those same technology lines, um, I saw the, a video of Walmart coming out with like a VR um, experience of shopping, and to be honest, it looked a little, it looked a little clunky. And I'm just wondering if you think, uh, do you think we're ever gonna move past just the clicking of like, I mean, right now Amazon has got a one-click buy. Is are we? Is there actual value in creating these virtual reality storefronts? Um Is that something that's just kind of cool technology or does it does it have legs?
1: I I think it I think it does. Um I I think that um and again, it's very early days, right? I mean, the the, the conversation around what we're what we're now kind of terming the metaverse is is very new and very nascent. But if we look at it from a practical standpoint, um, you know, Web 1.0 was basically about looking at PDFs online, right? Back to the old, um, uh, the old kind of green screen websites that we were familiar with. It was nothing really more than a bulletin board with some stuff appended to it. And then Web 2.0 was, was all of a sudden we, we became conversant with that information. We could interact with it. We could interact with other people, but, but in a very sort of point and click and text driven sort of environment. And I think that there is the opportunity now, especially as it applies to shopping, because I mean, let's face it, online shopping is not social. It is not, uh, engaging It's not fun. It's not like people don't say, hey, you know, why don't you come over on Wednesday? We'll open a bottle of wine and shop online. It's it's just not something you do, right? Um, But plenty of people say, hey, let's go to the mall and kick around a little bit and have some fun. So I I think there's a massive opportunity to turn the internet into a far more engaging um, uh, and and all-encompassing kind of experience that we can literally go into experiences online and shop from within those experiences where I'm, uh, and there's some really interesting work being done on that front. There's a company called Obsess uh, that builds CGI store environments. And so you can kind of navigate through the store in a more intuitive and realistic way. But um, the kinds of things you're referring to, I think, are, are kind of disappointing because you know we have this green field of opportunity to transform the online shopping experience. But what do we see brands do? Well, they basically uh, model their existing uh, physical world stores, and we just digitalize those and carry them into the carry them onto the internet and look at it as some sort of revolution. But I think that. What we will see eventually is that if you are, you know, once we have sort of a more fully constructed metaverse and you're able to to teleport yourself into that metaverse, if you're shopping for a new car, you won't go into a quote unquote car dealership in the metaverse, but you will go into a car driving experience that, that will be nothing like, you know, you may be able to drive a car on the Autobahn in the metaverse. You may be able to take it out on the Nürburgring, you know, and and do some fast laps on the Nürburgring and you're in a new Mercedes. You know, who knows? Sky's the limit. We can make anything happen there. So I think as, as companies become more attuned to the possibilities to create these sort of next level experiences, that's where uh, we're going to see... Uh, you know these interoperable worlds within the metaverse become really important, but that's probably on a five to ten year horizon.
0: you had one line in your book that just struck me as just so brilliant, but it was uh the mall used to be the internet it
1: used to be tinder, it used to be Netflix it used to be Amazon. It is an interesting point when you think about it. We did some work recently with a with a mall developer and and we and and I made that point with them that you know. When I was a teenager, and I won't date myself by telling you when that was, um, but when I was a teenager, the mall really and truly was the analog version of the internet. It was, you know, the average mall in the average town had a movie theater. So there was your Netflix. It had all these stores. Uh, and There was your Amazon. Uh, You very often would go to a record store. So there was iTunes or Pandora or Spotify. And it was where teens hung out, you know? So it was Instagram, it was TikTok. And relationships formed and ended at the mall as well. So yeah, it was to some extent Tinder as well. But it was the center of the universe. I mean, you spent a lot of time there for those reasons. And just as the smartphone... Came along and replaced about 60 other devices in our lives. You know everything from uh, GPS to cameras and and, and uh, music players. Um, so too did technology replace the social and commercial value of shopping centers, and so they too are in a place now where they have to reckon with the idea that nobody's gonna nobody's gonna get off the sofa and drive 20 minutes to get to a place that has 80 stores and an Orange Julius. It's, it's just not gonna happen. So what is the new purpose of the shopping center? Well, it has to be, to my mind anyway, it has to be a cultural, uh, social and entertainment engine. It has to be in and of itself, a place that you would want to go, even if they took all the retail stores out, you should want to go there because it provides unique, compelling, engaging experiences. It's a great way to spend time. And uh, many of them, unfortunately, many of the shopping centers out there and the and the developers that build them are still sort of trapped in this parochial commercial real estate mindset. They say, No, but 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 we just we just build the box and then we we lease it and we maintain it that's that's our business no no no. that's not your business that business is dead that business died a decade ago you guys just didn't get the memo what what that what that facility is now is it's an entertainment complex it's a cultural complex it's a social connection point that's what it has to be so um, we're fortunate in the sense that we have worked with a brand in that space that, that got it. They, they understand that, you know. And so they're, they're working on creating an entirely different model for the way, cons- way consumers engage with shopping centers. Can you give an
0: example of what some people are doing to convert the shopping centers? Like what, what kind of experiences? Well,
1: I, I, I guess put it this way. Um, for the most part, shopping centers have looked at retail as being responsible for driving traffic to the center right they they have for you know since the 1950s when our concept of the modern shopping center was born the modern suburban shopping center anyway the the landlord has sort of said if i get the right tenants uh i'll be golden you know cuz consumers need products and they'll come they'll come here because they don't have any other options aside from maybe a catalog you know, our mail order. So they will come if we have the right brands. The brands are the show. And I think what they are recognizing now is that the brands inside that center are really not a show at all. In fact, that's not what consumers are even looking for. What are consumers looking for? Well, they're looking for time well spent. Really, when we get right down to it, we want two things in our lives today. We either want time well saved, or we want time well spent. And I'm 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 really uh, ripping off uh, uh, pretty unashamedly here um, a guy named Joseph Pine. Joe Pine wrote a book in the 1990s called The Experience Economy. He's a brilliant uh, writer and marketer, and that's the way Joe Joe breaks it down. We want time well spent uh or or time well saved and so the shopping center needs to become about time well spent uh and uh and so what does that mean well that might mean that it becomes a a hub of the community maybe there are you know uh, community meetings that take place in there around community issues maybe it becomes an entertainment complex where i can go and watch a live performance Maybe it becomes a, a place that has a constant array of events and things that I can engage in. In fact, there's a, a friend of mine named Mark Toro is a developer in the Atlanta area. He's, he's expanded outside of Atlanta now, but uh, he, he built a facility called Avalon in, in Alpharetta, Georgia. And I think if I'm not mistaken, Mark and the team at, uh, at uh, Avalon have something in the range of 250 events a year. So, I mean, literally almost one event every day. And that can be anything from a tree lighting ceremony in, in the holidays. It could be a massive yoga class that's taking place, a live performance, a tennis competition. But he's, giving, he's making that center a hub in the community and a place where people can go for time well spent. Now, while I'm there, maybe I'll buy a new pair of uh, Nike running shoes as long as I'm here. But retail is an afterthought now.
0: As we wrap up here, I want to just speak to so people like Mark, and you've worked with a lot of leaders in this industry. What are the commonalities that you see in the leaders that push forward successfully? And anytime you're going into uncharted territory, there's always fear of the unknown. I guess, what words of wisdom would you share with leaders of brands that know they need to innovate, but just are, I guess... A little unsure.
1: Well, I would say simply this <clears throat> if you are innovating and you are sure that it's going to work, then you're not innovating. Because by definition, truly innovating means that you're doing something that has never been done before, either by you in your business or perhaps at all, ever, you know. Um, if you are, on the other hand, doing things that you feel are substantiated with great, solid data uh, that, that have a proven record of success in the marketplace, uh, then that's not innovation. You're not creating anything new. You're, you're, you may be iterating, you may be improving on something that you do, but that's not innovation. So I think we have to accept that if we are going to be truly innovative, then we have to be comfortable. We have to get comfortable with uncertainty. And, and we have to, uh, in fact, not just be comfortable with it, but we have to build it into the equation. We have to say every year, we are going to do a certain number of things that that make us uncomfortable, that we really don't have data to support. We may have, you know, kind of finger to the wind kind of sense that, Mm, our gut tells us this is the right thing to do. But it's a bit harrowing and you have to be prepared to fail. That doesn't mean you have to burn the house down. It just means that you have to be comfortable with uncertainty, that is what innovation is. Um, and the unfortunate part of that is that we have built a leadership culture, particularly in North America, that is not based on uncertainty at all. It's based on certainty. We look, we we look to leaders in North America to, you know, know exactly what's going to happen and to be able to project next quarter's sales with certainty. You know, we don't like ambiguity or uncertainty. And that's a that's a fault. Um we we have to get more and more comfortable with leaders that say, you know what, we're just gonna take a we're gonna take a whack at this and see if it works. Because that's how we get things. Wow like iPhones. That's how we get things like, um, you know, space programs for Pete's sakes, you know? Um, so yeah. innovation matters for sure. Well, this has been incredible.
0: Um, Doug, what haven't I asked that I should have asked or what? Uh, anything else that you wanna leave,
1: leave the listeners with? You know, with? The, the only thing I think that, that I would add, I guess, and it's just sort of painted against the backdrop of where we find ourselves today, um with all that that we've been through as a as a planet um over the last almost i don't know we're in our third year now i guess um is that all too often i find retail is a reactive force in the market you know retail sort of carries along doing its business and then all of a sudden an issue presents itself and retail will very often stick its head in the ground like an ostrich and sort of wait for the storm to pass. And only if there's enough public pressure, they'll do something, they'll take a position. And um, I think that we also have to be very cognizant that uh, retail is in, in many ways implicated in so many of the things that we are facing today. Uh, retail is a, is a huge drain on petroleum supplies. Retail uses a tremendous amount of petroleum in the creation of the products that we buy, you know whether it's fashion or, or consumer goods of any kind. Um, retail is, is very responsible for climate change. Retail is very responsible for inequity when it comes to incomes. You know We have suppressed wages in the retail industry for the better part of 40 years, and we are now reaping what we have sown in terms of income inequality, wealth inequality, and in, in most developed countries. So retail has to own up to that, and we have to stop being reactive, and we have to become a proactive force for good in the world, not just a reactive force that tries to tidy up the damage once it's done. And so that I think would be ultimately, uh, if, if I could leave listeners with anything, it would be that, that hope. Yeah,
0: yeah, well said. Uh, where can listeners go to learn more, to read more of your stuff, watch videos? Um, yeah, any, any plugs? Sure, yeah.
1: Well, the mothership is retailprofit.com. So if, uh, and that's profit with a PH. And if they go there, uh, it's a, a treasure trove of content. All right, Doug. Thank you very much. You bet, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit FCPServices.com. Until next time, remember, people drive growth.